Happy Sabbath. Today has been a very eventful day. Um, so as you know, Jinha and I, we pastor uh, two separate churches in the morning, and then we come here in the afternoon, and then we have a second church. Um, and uh, the afternoon is always something that we look forward to. Um, but yeah, this, this morning is one of those mornings where everything kind of... Uh, I don't know what the right word is, but uh, anyway, it's a very busy morning, <laughs> so um, it's good to be here and to experience the afternoon. Um, you're probably wondering, what is this big piece of rope doing here? And uh, you will you will find out shortly. Um, the we're starting a new series here at the Melbourne City Adventist Church, and it's over the it's covering the Book of Ecclesiastes. And uh, I have never preached on the Book of Ecclesiastes, and I thought, oh, it's kind of neat because it kind of tackles like. Uh, different questions about the meaning of life and uh, wrestling with death and, and that type of thing. And as I was studying this book this week, um, yeah, it was just an incredible challenge, but um, I'm looking forward to sharing it with you. And today will be a little bit of a presentation giving you a background of Ecclesiastes, and then we're going to do a little bit of Bible study together as opposed to the normal presentation. So for those of you who are joining us online, um, feel free to grab your Bibles, and uh, we're going to be doing a bit of a Bible study. So here's a brief introduction to the book of Ecclesiastes. Now, I've got... There we go. There's a clicker. Um, Yeah, just to give you a brief introduction to the book of Ecclesiastes. So the title for this morning's message is All is Not Vanity. Um, I don't know if you knew this, but Ecclesiastes is actually not a... uh, official title of the book of Ecclesiastes. If you look at the Hebrew uh, name of this book, it's called uh, Koheleth. And basically, Koheleth means, um, it describes a person occupying the office of a leader, of an assembly, a speaker, or a teacher. So it's kind of like a head rabbi of many other rabbis. And this word is used seven different times in the book of Ecclesiastes. And so the official title is Koheleth. So if you ever meet somebody and they're like, oh, have you heard of the book Ecclesiastes? You can tell them that's actually not the correct title of the book. So just fun fact. Um, now, Koheleth is a very unique Hebrew scripture. And the reason why it's a unique scripture, uh, the reason why it's a unique book is because there's no mention of Abraham, Isaac, or Jacob. It's actually very non-Hebrew, even though it's written by a Hebrew individual for Hebrews. Uh, there's no mention of prophecy. There's no mention of God's special dealing with his people. And as you read through this book, there's actually very little mention of hope and redemption and salvation. And so this is kind of a very unique um, unique portion of scripture. Instead, we find ourselves apparently reading about the meaninglessness of life and the certainty of death in a universe in which God is certainly present, but is distant and somewhat uninvolved. Now, Ecclesiastes is also very unique because it encourages hedonistic behavior. It encourages behavior that's very, just kind of eat and drink and be merry and then just you know, enjoy life. So it balances this meaninglessness plus this idea of enjoyment. And if you look at uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 12, uh, the, the author says, I know that nothing is better for them than to rejoice and to do good in their lives. Verse 13, and also that every man should eat and drink and enjoy the good of all his labor. It is the gift of God. And so because it encourages this kind of hedonistic kind of behavior, um, it actually kind of split the uh, the 
academic community in the old days. And so there are two different schools of rabbis. And one school of rabbis looked at this and said, this book is not inspired because it's not like any other part of scripture. And then the other school said, no, no, this book is inspired and we need to learn from it. And so nevertheless, this book is in the canon. And uh, I believe it has some really uh, important lessons to teach us. Um, Ecclesiastes was known to be written by King Solomon. And as you may have heard, Solomon was known to be the uh, wisest man on earth. And Ecclesiastes is kind of his reflection of experiencing all of his wisdom, all of his wealth, all of his uh, might. And so if there was anyone who really experienced life, it would have been Solomon. And th- these are his reflections on, on, um, on life. Now, the purpose of Ecclesiastes or Kohelet, um, there, there are several purposes to this book. One, as I've mentioned before, it wrestles with the meaning of life. It wrestles with the idea of wealth, of work, of relationships, and dealing with wisdom and knowledge, and uh, really trying to make sense of all this and making life very meaningful. Now, the reality is that Kohelet is complicated, or Ecclesiastes is very complicated. Um, there are several reasons. Uh, it's written in proverb or wise sayings, and Proverbs, by their very nature, are brief and usually without context. And I used to have a professor who would say, text without context is pretext. Text without context is pretext. And so if you don't have literary context, you can't actually know what somebody is talking about, right? So uh, if my dad says, uh, if someone yells to me, go, well, go where? Like, are you even talking to me? Like, what do you, so without context of someone giving me a command. I can't actually know what to do with that command. And Ecclesiastes is challenging because of that lack of literary context um, to help the reader with their meaning. And it demands a kind of individual engagement with these specific proverbs in order to understand what they actually mean. Secondarily, individuals will interpret each passage or each proverb differently due to the lack of literary context. And as a result, the life experiences of each individual will reflect how one understands a proverb. You might be going through something in your life, you read a part of Ecclesiastes and think, oh, this is what it means. Uh, Two years later, you go back and you read the exact same passage and you see it in a complete different light and a different understanding. And the reality is, one isn't necessarily a wrong way of interpreting it. It's just different people will bring different things to a text. And so, by nature, this book is complicated. Not only that, Koheleth, or the the, uh, leader of the teachers, often contradicts himself. And here is one example. If you look at Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 1, he says, I said in my heart... Come now, I will test you with mirth. Therefore, enjoy pleasure. But surely, this also was vanity. So notice here, the, um, the preacher, or the teacher, um, he looks at this idea of pleasure and he says, this is vanity. Like, enjoying yourself? Like, what's the point of that? Like, it doesn't make sense. But if you look in verse 24, which is in the exact same chapter, he says... Nothing is better for a man than that he should eat and drink and that his soul should enjoy good in his labor. This also I saw was from the hand of God. So here's like this very apparent contradiction. And it's kind of like, wait a second here. And he does this repeatedly throughout the book. So it kind of begs the question of why do you write in such a confusing, complex manner? And uh, the reality is that Kohelet is responding to a messy, complicated universe. 
The form of the book mirrors the content of the writing. It is complicated, often contradictory, and it isn't organized. And if you look at the nature of the world, um, people are kind of like that. We are walking contradictions. We are complicated. There are moments where uh, we believe it's right to enjoy something, and then the next moment, it's not right to enjoy that very same thing. And so, um, because life is complicated, the writing is complicated. And so, um, it just really requires the reader to engage with the text, to think about it, and to understand why am I doing what I am doing. So, there's Koheleth. Now, here's the worldview of uh, this book, and it's really important to understand um, these two ideas, the idea of vanity, understanding what um, Solomon means when he uses this word vanity, and also how Solomon finds meaning in the midst of all this meaninglessness. And so, here's the definition of vanity. If you look at the very first two verses of Ecclesiastes chapter 1 and 2, and this is just like a snapshot of the Hebrew, um, but I just, I want to, if you have your Bibles, can you turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 1, and we're going to look at verses 1 and 2. And I'll read this to you. It says, The, the words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem, Vanity, vanity, says the teacher, absolute vanity, everything is vanity. Now, in the Hebrew language, it has these root words. And with the nouns, the way that it changes how that noun is used is it adds these different uh, pointings right here. But the root word is actually the same. And so there's kind of this um, poetry almost in this idea. So if you look, it just repeats this word hebel over and over and over again. So if you look at the... Uh, eight words, or the seven words that are used in this sentence, five of them are the exact same word. He's basically saying vanity, 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 and he's vainly repeating vanity. And he's doing this on purpose to communicate what this actually means. And if you look at the dictionary definition, uh, basically vanity means vapor or breath. Um, it's it, it communicates something that is vain. It's Temporary, it's transient, it's not long-lasting. And so, um, if you think of a breath, and if you want to try to practice this with me, if you kind of breathe into your hand, like, like don't smell it, but like just breathe into your hand, right? Um, it's something that you feel, but then it immediately goes away, right? And so, Solomon is communicating, my work, my wealth, my wisdom, it's like, it's like breath, it's just, it's like almost tangible, and you can almost grasp it, and then it just disappears. And so he's trying to communicate. Um, he's trying to communicate this idea. Now, here's how the writer finds meaning. This is how Solomon um, explains. This is how you overcome this idea of meaninglessness and vanity in your life. So Ecclesiastes chapter three, verse eleven. He writes this in, in uh, regards to God. He says, He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, He has put eternity in their hearts, except that no one can find out the work that God does from beginning to end. Now, it's interesting because Solomon writes here that God puts eternity in our hearts. Now, think for a moment. What do you think that means, putting eternity in your hearts? 
Now, when you think of eternity, um, what is it? Uh, time, place, thing? What would you say? State? Oh, getting deep. Getting deep. Time? Okay. I, I usually think of time, like eternity as time. And I usually think of eternity as something as future because right now I'm not living in eternity because, well, if I die, I die, right? So um, Solomon would say here, there is this time of everlasting, and then you can kind of fill in the blank. And he's saying that God puts this in our hearts so that we'll kind of want something. And so the idea is we are constantly trying to fill eternity in our hearts. And uh, some, some Christian apologists would call that the God-shaped hole, right? Or the God-sized hole in our hearts. So we're always trying to fill our lives with something. And we're designed to search after something so that eventually when we find God, we'll get a small piece of what, that, what we're actually looking for. And we'll realize, ah, this is what I've been looking for. And so Solomon says, we have this thing in our hearts where we are searching for something that's going to be in the future, and we keep searching for it. But when we find that, that's kind of where you find the meaning of life. In Ecclesiastes chapter 6, verses 5 and 6, he says, Though it has not seen the sun or known anything, this has more rest than that man. Even if he lives a thousand years twice but has not seen goodness, does not all go to one place? And he's basically saying, you can live two lifetimes, a thousand years long each. And if you don't find goodness, well, what do you? What do you have? But I would reverse that question around and say, if you find goodness, you don't need to live two lifetimes that are a thousand years long apiece. You just find goodness and one lifetime is filling. And so the, uh, the uh, preacher would then say, go find goodness. Finally, um, the author of Ecclesiastes encourages us to look at life in the context of judgment. So if you have your Bibles, if you can turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 11, verses 9 and 10. Ecclesiastes chapter 11, verses 9 and 10. And here's what the passage says. Rejoice, young man, while you are young. And let your heart be glad in the days of your youth. And walk in the ways of your heart and in the sight of your eye. But know that for all these things, God will bring you to judgment. Remove sorrow from your heart and put away pain from your flesh. Because youth and the prime of your life are fleeting. And so Solomon would say, live your life. Go experience it. Go explore. Go try different things. But remember, everything that you're going to do will be brought into judgment. And so the context of life is in obedience to God and in remembering this idea that there is going to be a time of, um, yeah, of judgment. And that's supposed to um, actually give hope. Um, and in the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon doesn't really explain what judgment is. Um, but in the context of the Bible, judgment is something that's supposed to give us hope. And so I'll just leave that, uh, leave you with that. Okay, Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verses 13 and 14. And maybe I'll get someone else to read, um, just to change things up a bit. So maybe I'll ask Shane if you can read in your uh, preacher voice. Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verses 13 and 14. Alright, so verse 13 says, Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is man's goal. For God will bring every work into judgment, including every 
Okay, so notice here, once again, that idea of judgment is done. And basically, Solomon's conclusion is, do you want to find meaning? Then understand judgment. And the reason why he says this is because judgment is kind of the gateway to experiencing eternity. Now, um, I asked Galen for some rope because I knew if anybody had rope, Galen would have rope. And um, I told him to give me the longest piece of rope that he had, and so he, he did exactly that. So, if I were, if I were um, Solomon, and I were trying to explain this concept, and this is obviously a limited um, illustration, but look at this rope, and I've just made a knot here, and I've got a little, little piece of rope right here. And I would say our lives um, are the length of this rope, and the Let's just say this rope went forever. Um, the rest of the rope is eternity. And basically what, um, what Solomon would say is, so many times we focus on this much of the rope. And so we invest all of our time, all of our efforts, all of our resources. The greatest portion of our thought goes towards this. And what Solomon would say is, yeah, you can spend your life looking at this, but it's all meaningless because you're not considering well, the rest of it, right? And so he would say, consider eternity. So rather than spending all of your time investing in this, spend your time investing in this. And why, that's why Solomon would say, fear God, keep the commandments, obey, and consider judgment. Because it is, this is judgment, it's the gateway to the rest of your life. And so... With that in mind, uh, what I'd like to do is look at two different examples that Solomon gives. Um, and basically, these are two examples where Solomon basically encourages us not to find meaning in. And so, uh, we are prone to finding meaning in that which is transient, uh, whether it's wealth or knowledge or etc. And that which is transient by nature cannot provide meaning because it isn't long-lasting. And so, I'd like to look at these two passages with you, and we're just going to do a little Bible study and uh, talk about these things together. So, Ecclesiastes... Chapter 2, verses 17 to 24, and we're going to be reading these passages, and we're going to be talking about wealth. Ecclesiastes, chapter 2, verses 17 to 24. And we'll each read two verses, and maybe... um, Sorry, I didn't get to say hello to you before we started. (laughs) What's your name? Noemi. No Haley. No Haney. Haley, what a no. No Haley. No Haley. Yes. Alright, sorry. Can you can you pick us up and we'll just we'll just snake around the room. And um yeah, just read two verses and we'll go until twenty four. Therefore I turned my heart 
And Lynn, oh, sorry, David, please. For there is a man whose labor is in wisdom and in knowledge and in equity. Yet to a man that hath not labored, therein shall be even for his portion. This also is vanity and great For what hath man of all his labor and of the vexation of his heart, wherein he hath labored? You're reading from a King James Version, huh? <laughs> you downloaded one of those free Bible apps. <laughs> free King James. <laughs> All right, now, um, so we're at verse 24, and I just want to pause there for a moment. Now, and this is more dialogue-oriented. What are some reasons that Solomon lists as to why one should not trust in wealth to find meaning? Why does he say that wealth is considered vanity? Okay, so when you die, it doesn't do you any good. And I don't, I don't know if you've uh, seen those um, e- Egyptian, um, I think they're called sarcophaguses, and basically the pharaohs, to go into the afterlife, they would, take, they would accumulate all this wealth and fill their burial site with all, these gold, all this gold and different things that they wanted to take with them. And some of these burial sites are just massive. And um, the reality is, like, people would come and they would rob their graves, right? And so this was, anyway, this was like a pretty big thing in Egypt. So anyway, when you die, that's it. It's done. Anything else? Why is wealth not considered something that is meaningful. Why is it considered vanity? Sorry? Yeah, that's right. He's saying, look, you work for your wealth, and then you die, and then someone else comes and enjoys it for you. And he's basically saying, if somebody enjoys the work that I have done, and then they go and waste everything that I have accumulated, then what good is it? Because it's so fleeting, right? It's not long-lasting. Anything else? Notice he says in verse 19, he says, And who knows whether he will be a wise man or a fool? Yet he will take over all my work that I labored at skillfully under the sun. This too is futile. And he's kind of referencing, um, like, I don't know why, but he he really harps on this idea of having, like, children who are going to inherit your, your wealth. And he's like, who knows if they are going to be wise or foolish? And what I want to highlight is this. Sometimes wealth um, brings about a certain status. And I don't know if you've ever felt this, but it's like, man, if I just hit this mark, then I would have made it because people will see me as, and then you fill in the blank. And Solomon would say, this individual received wealth. I don't know if he's going to be wise or foolish. And though he isn't directly communicating this, I still think you can kind of pull this principle out of this. We find meaning based off of certain things because of what we think it's going to do for us. 
what we think it's going to communicate to everybody else. If I inherit all this money and I'm wealthy, then people might think, hey, I have my life put together. I might, I might be considered wise. But Solomon, Solomon would look at that and say, that person may be foolish and may waste everything. And so just because you've accumulated wealth, it doesn't mean you have actually arrived. Some people arrive at wealth out of inheritance. Some people arrive at wealth out of accident, out of pure luck, whether it's the lottery. Some people arrive at wealth because they do work hard and because they have arrived. And so Solomon would look at that and say, actually, when you arrive at a specific thing, it doesn't actually mean that what you think it's going to mean. Does that kind of make sense? Okay, let's, let's go to the next passage. Um, chapter 5, verses 10 to 17. Chapter 5, verses 10 to 17. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 10 to 17. And we are at Janelle. Verse 13, maybe Esther. And verse 15, maybe Shenden. Can I get you to read that? Verse 15. Everyone comes naked from their mother's womb, and as everyone comes, so they depart. They take nothing from their toil that they can carry in their hands. Okay, um, and I'll just end on verse 17, um, uh, 16 and 17. This too is a sickening tragedy. Exactly as he comes, so he will go. What does the one gain who struggles for the wind? What is more, he eats in darkness all his days with much sorrow, sickness, and anger. Okay. So what new things, there's a little bit of overlap between the second passage and the first one, but what new thing do you learn about uh, in terms of why is wealth considered vanity from the perspective of Solomon? Okay, it's never enough. Now, I don't know how many of you have ever experienced not feeling satisfied. It doesn't have to be necessarily with money. It can be with anything. For me, it's like ice cream. And I just think, man, I really want that ice cream bar. And I get home and I eat that ice cream bar and I was like, that didn't do it for me. So like, I look for something else in the kitchen. Maybe, maybe it's chips. And I go get chips and I start eating the chips. And I know that wasn't either. Maybe it's frozen mangoes. And I just go through and it drives my, ni- my, my wife nuts. Because she's like, she's cooked this meal for me. I've come home. I eat the meal and I just keep eating. And she's like, when is it ever enough? And I was like, I don't just something, I'm not sure exactly what it is. And it's, sometimes it's just, anyway, I end up eating a lot. <laughs> it doesn't show, but I do end up eating a lot. But yeah, there's just some things that do not satisfy. What else do you see? Well, being rich could be stressful. He talks about not sleeping. Yes. Yes. 
Yes. And I always felt that wealth brought security. And I thought if I if I have wealth then I'll be then I'll feel safe. And I find it's the people who have the most power that are the most unsafe. Um recently the uh it's been quite big news about the pope traveling throughout um America and I would think this guy is like the figurehead of religion so he's like supposed to be the man of peace in terms of the world's perception of who he is right and here's this peaceful man he's the head of the arguably the biggest church in the world and you would think this man has power he is a man of peace and he drives around in this completely bulletproof case vehicle you know what i mean and i just think wait a second here how come he can't just go walk around or i think of the united the president of the united states of america so much security detail you would think arguably the most powerful man on planet earth and yet he is the most unsafe man on planet earth at the same time Anything else in that passage? I want to go back to that idea of something never being enough. And I I've shared this before, but I just I think it it bears repeating. Um how many of you've heard of the Billionaire Club? The Billionaire Club. So basically Bill Gates has gone around and he has dedicated himself to philanthropy and what he's done is he's going around and he's recruiting people to join this exclusive club and in order to gain rights to join that this club you have to commit um well th- there's two criteria one you have to commit 50% of your wealth to philanthropy in your lifetime So 50% of your wealth to philanthropy in your lifetime. So that's the first criteria. The second criteria is that you have to be a billionaire. You have to be a billionaire. And so he's got somewhere around 200 people that have signed up to the billionaire club. Um you've got people like Mark Zuckerberg, you have people like um Paul Allen, uh Rup- um uh Warren Buffett um and different individuals who have said I'm going to give my money and Warren Buffett has actually said I'm going to give overnight I'm going to give 99% of my wealth to philanthropy uh, before I die and so he's actually committed that to the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Now I just think here here are billionaires I have no idea what that figure looks like because it's just kind of like a figment of my imagination right and I just I'm like if you're a billionaire when is it ever enough and most of these people are still working most of these people are still m- making around over a billion dollars a year and i just think what's it like to work one year and make a billion dollars and i kind of ask that question when is it enough is it enough at 1 billion what about 10 billion what about 60 billion what about and i just it blows my mind. I I don't know if you've ever looked at the Forbes list and I look at the Forbes list every now and then and uh Bill Gates who is retired made ni- made 9 billion dollars last year. I how do you make 9 billion dollars in your retirement? Like I I just have no idea. And I kind of wonder when when is it enough? And I realize it's never enough and at the same time I feel like these guys, these individuals have found the answer and that they're saying we're committing ourselves to giving what we have accumulated away. And that that brings meaning into their lives and i think that's just incredible that for people who you would think it's not enough have found no we found something that is meaningful and it is and it is enough and so anyway i thought that was interesting 
Okay, so wealth. Solomon repeats over and over and over again, wealth is transient, it is not long-lasting, therefore, don't trust in wealth to create meaning in your life. Let's go to wisdom. So, Ecclesiastes chapter 2, and we're going to read verses 12 to 16, and we'll end here. Ecclesiastes chapter 2, and we're going to read verses 12 to 16. And I believe we are back at Lily. Yes, please. Wisdom is like having two good eyes. Foolishness moves you in the dark. But wise or foolish, we will end up the same. Finally, I said to myself, being wise got me nowhere. The same thing will happen to me that happens to fools. Nothing makes sense. Wise or foolish, we will die and are soon forgotten. And uh, verse 16. Um, Shen, Jane. For there is no more remembrance of the wise than of the fool forever, since all that now is will be forgotten in the days to come. And how does a wise man die as a fool? Okay. Now, in these five uh, verses, why is wisdom something that is considered vain or fleeting or vanity? I think even in, the, even in academia, the way that you create a name for yourself is by finding new knowledge and debunking old knowledge. And so you almost have to put one prolific writer down to elevate yourself, and this is a perpetual thing. Okay, what else do you notice? Why is wisdom something not worth, wisdom and knowledge something not worth, uh, or I shouldn't say not worth, um, but something that is considered vanity? Yeah. So once again, that idea of death, he's saying, if you're wise or foolish, you're both going to die. And there's one other thing that's mentioned here. If you look at verse 15, here's Solomon, the wisest man in the world. And he says, what happens to the fool will also happen to me. In other words, Solomon's wisdom does not protect him from every single scenario that comes his way. The foolish person may get hit by a bus as he crosses the street. The wise person may get hit by a bus as he crosses the street. And that's just a reality. And sometimes trusting in wisdom is, if I'm smart enough, if I know enough, it will protect me from experiencing pain and suffering. And the reality is, you could be the most brilliant person in the world, but you may still get stuffed around. And so Solomon says, listen, there are people who are much more foolish than I am, but they still experience hardship. And so he says, what good is it to have all this wisdom? And he says, this too is vanity. Now, he does say later on in the book of Ecclesiastes, 
it is better to be uh, wise than it is to be foolish, just as light is better than darkness. And so, wisdom has its benefits, but he's saying you can't completely trust in wisdom. And I suppose the reason why we're so drawn to wealth, the reason why we're so drawn to wisdom is because it gives us the illusion that we have control. And that's something that's greatly desired, to have control. And Solomon would then say, actually, you can't have control from these two things. It might help you, but it is not the answer. And so he he basically says, here is the answer. Fear God, keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man, and eat and drink and enjoy yourself. That's basically what he says. Basically, he says, enjoy the ride, acknowledge God, consider judgment. So with that, um, I hope that uh, the first half of this message, um, and we'll continue on next week, would make you reflect upon some of these things. And um, we're going to be discussing Ecclesiastes chapter 8 um, in, in Roundtable today. And uh, he basically breaks down a little bit of judgment. And um, yeah, I, I think it'd be an interesting exercise to just have a chat. It'll be a very simple discussion time for today. But um, as you reflect upon the uh, Song of Response, it's written by, um, well, it's it's um, performed by a band named Gunger, and uh, they're one of my favorite. It's they're probably one of my favorite bands right now at the moment. And what you're going to experience, what I think you're going to experience, is as you listen to the lyrics, you're going to think, "What are they talking about?" And if you think that question, I encourage you to go Google. Um, the band Gunger and the title of the song for the song of response is I Am Mountain and it really talks about this uh, existential crisis that uh, that this that the songwriter goes through and um, I hope it really causes you to think and um, yeah just like the just like Solomon says we're so prone to kind of defining ourselves by what we do and what he's saying is rather than chasing after vain things acknowledge God and um yeah, I hope that um, in a strange way that it brings about meaning in, in your life as you experience these different things. So may God bless you.